Welcome to the International Civil Society Center's Future and Innovation Podcast. I'm Nihal Helmi, Knowledge and Communities Manager here at the Center. Our Global Perspectives 2021 hybrid experience was as exciting and inspiring as you'd expect. We gave our communities the opportunity once again to immerse themselves in themes and workshops, designing common strategies to address key trends, challenges, and opportunities of shifting power. We have created these episodes to bring you some of the conversations and panels we experienced during the conference. We hope you find them as insightful and valuable as we did. Now it is my pleasure to introduce to you our Executive Director, Dr. Wolfgang Yaman. Over to you, Wolfgang. Thank you very much, Nihal, and um, greetings to everyone. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Wolfgang Yaman. As Nihal has said, I'm the Executive Director of the International Civil Society Center. And for those who are visually impaired, I'm wearing a white shirt and a gray jacket. So welcome everyone to the start of a very special Global Perspective Conference. It's our 13th edition in total. And of course, a very warm welcome to our panelists for this setting the scene session, whom I will introduce in just a minute. But let me come uh, back to the topic of the conference. Nihal has, um, has mentioned this, we want to talk about power. And mind you, some 10 years ago, people would probably have been rather uncomfortable to speak about this, speak about power as a characteristic of what constitutes our work in the sector. Yes, we speak truth to power, we challenge governance and corporates, but even in the most critical dialogues about civil society in the past, other concepts dominated the discourse. We spoke about change, about transformation, about disruption, speaking about rights and injustice, and at best, we followed a rather questionable narrative of empowering people who are marginalized or vulnerable. And uh, I have the privilege to have been in the sector for quite a while, so I looked at one of the, the early and very classical kind of critical publication that many of us know, so let me just show you this to you, the 1989 Laws of Poverty of Graham Hancock, uh, which many of you probably have seen and when he speaks even then of rich and powerful bureaucracies that have hijacked our kindness, he limits his criticisms to official aid organizations like the World Bank or USAID and excludes the voluntary agencies like Oxfam, Save the Children and the like. I would say over the past 10 years or so, the reflections on the sector have changed dramatically fueled by outcries over power abuses, the Me Too or the Black Lives Matter movements, but also by the demands of an increasingly emancipated civil society all over the globe. Now today, hierarchies and power structures and imbalances are openly challenged, and the sector is to be decolonized. It is encouraging to see that many of us bravely challenge now power within, as much as power between actors in the sector, that we seek equitable power distributions and partnerships, we reflect on old versus new power movements, and we dive deep into new challenges like those related to digital access. 
So it's therefore opportune to spend some of our valuable time and energy to explore those power dynamics further over the coming days. And today we are privileged to have three wonderful panelists to kick us off and set the scene. So today with us are Jose Vieira, CEO of the World Blind Union, Viveka Kalistam, uh, the Senior Policy Specialist of CEDA Sweden, and Dr. Githinji Gitahi, Group CEO of MREF Health Africa. This was a short introduction. They all bring impressive experiences uh, and CVs, which you will find on our speakers page. And I will leave it to them to briefly introduce themselves further when they start with their inputs. Um, I will just kick us off with inviting each of you for a short statement. In terms of um, staying focused, I would suggest that everyone except the panelists would switch off their video for the time being so that we can focus on the three colleagues that we have uh, on the screen for the time being. However, please, for the audience, also feel free to submit your questions in the chat for the panelists anytime during the discussion. So we'll come back to them either afterwards or right, uh, right away if, if appropriate. So let me start to invite Viveka uh, for a short five-minute statements on your particular perspective and the perspective of the people you serve on the actual, the needed, and the expected power shifts. And then we'll have a similar input from different perspectives by Jose and then Githinji in this first round. Viveka, welcome. Thank you, Wolfgang, and thank you for very inspiring words in your introduction. Uh, my name is Vivica Karlestam. I work as a senior policy specialist in CEDA, in, in the Swedish Agency for uh, Development Cooperation, in the Unit for Civil Society. And I have been in this post for uh, four years now. And before that, I have worked for uh, more than 30 years or close to 30 years at least in, in development cooperation and with civil society organizations. Anyway, I would like to say that I believe that time is indeed ripe for redefining power and partnerships in our context of civil society development cooperation, as well as in other types of international development cooperation. And we all know that addressing power issues is not only about addressing the UN system or our governments, but also about self-critically examining ourselves, bi bilateral uh, donors, multilateral donors and actors, and all civil society organizations across the globe to see how we can transform ourselves and thus our system. So we ask ourselves what kind of change scenario is needed, not least against the backdrop of shrinking and closing civic space. What policy changes can we make and how can we organize ourselves and our work differently? to withstand the rise of autocratization, social and economic inequality, and climate change around the world. We have a situation today where 
of all of the OECD member states funding to civil society goes to either international NGOs or donor country based civil society organizations, while only 7% goes directly to civil society organizations in partner countries or, or in global south as it also is called. So if we look ahead a couple of years, I think we all agree that this is not sustainable. There must be a power shift in terms of direct resource flows. Money must be flowing to global South civil society actors in their own right as independent actors in their own context. And we will have to figure out what that entails for the partnerships between civil society actors in the global north and the global south. But there are several chapters to this analysis, one being the not so successful move from charity and aid into a human rights based approach where development cooperation actually is political work aiming at structural and political change as opposed to technical work. However, we seem to fear political work because it's hard and it's conflictive and it's non-predictable. So instead we become technocrats and we deliver technical solutions to political problems and focus on compliance and control instead of structure structural change and impact. Another chapter is more of a cultural one where we need to ask ourselves tough, hard questions like who do we trust? Who has the right of initiative? Who takes decisions? Who creates knowledge? Who has the interpretive precedence? And these questions all link into the discussion about the white gaze or the, the white savior. Uh, a third chapter connected to the first two is the example of capacity building. Capacity building and control towards a donor, or is it capacity to mobilize people in movements and organizations changing structures that cause poverty and injustice. Often the concept of capacity building in the Global South CSOs in itself assumes that there is no capacity to begin with. So why do we assume that there is a lack of capacity? What if funding is the most urgent need for Global South CSOs? I have worked in the sector for 30 years, many of them in Latin America and in the Middle East, and I have often reflected over the capacity and the knowledge and the strength of civil society actors in, in the global south, uh, often much more capable than their intermediary or global north partner. Indeed, many of them have told me that they have received capacity building for years for leadership skills, for building internal systems, for administrative procedures, for project management, etc. And they ask me when they will ever graduate from this capacity building. When will they be trusted in their own right? 
and funded as the independent and capable actors they are, driven by their own mission. So there are many issues to address in this, our common work on, on power shift, but these are just my, my first uh, overall reflections that I would like to share. Back to you then, Wolfgang. Excellent, thank, thank you, Viveka, and, and really encouraging to hear these critical and also self-critical statements uh, from one of the most progressive donors that we have in the sector. But Viveka, that analysis, to a certain extent, we've heard now for long. Uh, I remember, you know, in the uh, World Humanitarian Summit, the low funding levels for local organizations was a big topic. Uh, like you said, the capacity building narrative we do not manage to drive it out of the room. It comes and reappears. Give us some hope. Where is the, where is the concrete progress? What is happening uh, from what you are seeing as a donor, maybe in a, in a quick follow-up statement on, on some of the more concrete things that we see? Then I will take us back to the OECD study and the 93% of the funding that goes to international NGOs or, or in our own donor country-based civil society organizations. And I would say that we are now beginning to look at this because one of the reasons to this not so equal uh, financial distribution is the historical more or less tied aid that many OECD members still have with their own domestic civil society organizations. And this is for different reasons. But I, I call this a structural awkwardness that we should question and analyze. Uh, and perhaps it could be analyzed together with, with all the other DAC members in the OECD DAC community of practice or within the framework of development effectiveness uh, agenda uh, within the OECD. So we can, we can move this very sensitive question together. Uh, and self-critically. Uh, a second uh, issue is the changing the narrative about the capacity building. So instead of, as we do today, talk about the weak and the unreliable, more or less, uh, Global South civil society organizations, we, uh, and this narrative too, has been become a justification for many INGOs and for our own domestic CSOs too, to maintain, to, to stay as the intermediaries or the controllers in this chain of development cooperation. So let's instead talk about the great capacity of Global South CSOs and how well equipped and appropriate they are to decide on their own based on their knowledge and their experiences in their own political and cultural context, what to do. And also we all know that it's fundamental the work uh, of civil society organizations. Uh, and we know too that we will not uh, reach Agenda 2030 without enabling uh, civil society organizations to act and work. And also this was mentioned by uh, the United Nations uh, General Secretary in his speech uh, and his uh, document a call to action on human rights 2020, where he highlighted the need uh, of public participation and civic space for us to reach the SDGs and Agenda 2030. 
But now comes the hope. Now we're aiming at decreasing the gap between policy and practice and, and push for much more development effective ways. We have the recently adopted OECD DAC recommendation on enabling civil society, which was approved this summer, and it is a binding legal instrument and it will push us DAC member states uh, into improving. And it is very timely given what is at stake. Apart from highlighting the need for respecting, protecting and promoting civic space, the recommendation is very specific on how member states can and should support and engage with civil society in Global South, where it calls for more dialogue and mutual consultation in the Global South, supporting a more diverse range of civil society actors, supporting civil society organizations in their own right and as independent actors, and make available and accessible direct support and flexible and predictable core support. And it further underlines the importance of supporting Global South civil society strategic alliances and networks and platforms and resource centers at all levels and they could could be global or regional or national and subnational but they aim to strengthen the political power and force of civil society actors themselves in global south and, and Sweden and CEDA, we have played a, 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 an important role in the work that led up to this uh, recommendation, and we're very, very happy about it. So here we are then, both our own critical analysis and the OECD DAC recommendation point in the direction of a power shift and a so-called decolonization of civil society development cooperation and the changes in roles and support structures and alliance building and advocacy and financial flows that follows from that. And, and so now is the time to implement the recommendation and for us to contribute to this very long awaited transformation of our development cooperation ecosystem. And I also want to share with you before I, I finish uh, that uh, last week on Thursday, the Swedish CSOs all together, they arranged a seminar and it was uh, on the topic, uh, redefining power and partnerships, time to decolonize civil society aid. And there were 350 participants from all over the world who took part in this very, very interesting and very self-critical discussion. And I think several of you who are here today also participated. And CEDA has taken on to arrange step number two in this process. So on the 8th of December, uh, we will arrange something that's called CEDA Development Talks. And it will be on the same issue of power shift. And it's open for everyone who wants to, to participate. So please come. Thank you, Wolfgang. Thanks for the encouragement. Uh, we know the OECD paper is, is a paper. Uh, it is binding, but it is to be put into action. So we'll come back to that, uh, definitely. Um, Jose, you're bringing not just a slightly different perspective from the community that 
is assembled at the World Blind Union. But you also highlight, uh, as far as I understand, the dimensions of the digital world in questions of accessibility and, um, and equally distributed or unequally distributed power. Please, Jose, give us your uh, take of the topic. All right, so um, first of all, thank you, Wilhelm, for inviting us uh, to this uh, important uh, conference and even for allowing us to be part of the opening uh, conference. I think that's uh, definitely a, a step in relation to moving our agenda forward. As a way of introduction, I was uh, born and raised in Argentina, currently living, living in Canada. And along with uh, managing the World Blind Union Secretariat, I also manage the Secretariat of the Global Disability Summit, which is the um, conference that we try to discuss disability and development and how we can um, complement each other. And at the same time, another important thing that I would like to highlight is that uh, recently I've been appointed as an independent board member of CBIL, of, of an organization, CBM Global Disability Inclusion, which is not only a very active um, member of, of, of the center, but also an organization that is putting in practice the idea of working with persons with disabilities and their representative organizations. So I think um, that is another good example of how we can start putting in practice this power shift discussion. But let me, um, let, let, me, let me share with the audience then that when I was preparing for this intervention, I asked myself if I want to discuss power shift and how we can start talking about decolonization and equal access to wouldn't it be better to ask ourselves what preconditions have to be in place for us to start discussing that? And I guess this is what I'm trying to come from. Of course, we understand that power dynamic is changing, that we as a community more and more realize the need for rethinking all these concepts, but up to what extent we are thinking on what needs to happen before that discussion in order to bring everyone to the table. And I think when we talk about persons with disabilities, this question of what has to happen before in order to start discussing power distribution and equal access we need to realize that there is still to be a lot to be done for promoting equal access by persons to with disabilities to these type of, 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 of discussions. In other words, if I am trying to address the issue of power dynamic and by doing so, I do not do what is required to bring persons with disabilities that need reasonable accommodations for them to be participating, I am definitely missing part of the population that I want to target. COVID-19, I think, 
is one of the best examples ever to prove what I'm trying to say. Definitely, we knew before the pandemic that persons with disabilities were left behind still, and that if we wanted to achieve the SDGs, we needed to do even more around persons with disabilities. But COVID-19 pandemic, and in particular, many of the recovery uh, plans that countries put in place have shown us how far we are from ensuring that persons with disabilities are included. The fact that many persons with disabilities stopped having access to healthcare facilities because of the pandemic, that many persons with disabilities that only have jobs in the informal market couldn't go out because of the lockdown resulting in not even being able to bring food to their families. It's speaking clearly of if we want to start discussing about power dynamics and power shift, we need to ensure that we put all measures needed in place to bring everyone, including persons with disabilities, to the table. One more thing that it reminds me when I was trying to prepare for this great opportunity of sharing my thoughts with you was if we all agree that persons with disabilities should be included, how do we perceive persons with disabilities and how much do we know about the disability community around the world in terms of how they are organized, how we are structured, who is the representative voice of persons with disabilities. And of course, there are many answers for some of those questions that I just uh, mentioned. But first of all, we need to do even more in realizing that persons with disabilities and their representative organizations. So how people with disabilities, we have organized ourselves in organizations can be equal partners to international INGOs, governments, UN agencies, multilateral agencies, etc., etc. Without realizing and without recognizing that organization of persons with disabilities can be equal partners and they should be considered equal partners, the discussion around power shift will be missing at least one million people's perspective. And that is definitely a lot. I would just, in closing, uh, at least for this first question, Wolfgang, like to uh, highlight that after the disability community started to work in a more structured way at the international level, and we have achieved excellent goals like the UNCRPG convention or the inclusion of persons with disabilities in the SDGs, the next step is how we implement the global achievements at the national level. And of course, there are many ways and many tools that have to be present to achieve such 
national level implementation. But if there is one as data around persons with disabilities, an evidence-based approach. That's why if we want to be innovative as this conference is being and trying to connect the discussion around power and data or equity around data, it is important to recognize that we need to do even more bigger investment in bringing persons with disabilities and their, represent and their representative organizations to the discussion around data. Organization of persons with disabilities, we do generate data, we know who we are, we know where we live, we know what we need. We need partners to let us take this conversation forward and to mainstream disability among the international community. Thank you, Jose, and thanks for reminding us that uh, when we talk about power shift, we're not talking about shifting power from one elite to the other. We're talking basics. We're talking to bringing those who are, you know, it's, I hate to kind of overstress that term, but those who are most likely to be left behind in all kinds of development processes, again, into the power shift debate, whether it is creating the preconditions, creating the infrastructure, making making sure that people have voices or the voices are being heard and also thanks for reminding us that it is also about the perceptions that we have about those groups and this resonates very much with what Viveka said when she mentioned the narratives that we kind of seem to perpetuate around our local partners and the communities we work with. I want to turn to Githinji. Githinji, uh, you're based in Nairobi. Your organization is fighting all kinds of health problems and of course having focused on the COVID situation over the last one and a half years. And you have a deep understanding and deep insight in what happens in those communities. Please give us your perspective on what is needed and what is happening around power shift. Well, thank you very much, Wolfgang. And um, uh, thank you, Viveka and Jose. I have listened keenly and we are fully aligned. My name is Dr. Gedenji Gitahi. I am Kenyan by birth. I am black. I am wearing glasses. So I am wearing a blue cardigan and a polo, a gray polo inside. And uh, I am really happy to speak to all of you from Nairobi. I'll do some very quick exercise here because I have listened to Viveka and Jose and we fully agree. So I really, what has been disturbing me a lot uh, from uh, this point of view, especially because I run an organization that is based in Nairobi, Kenya, it's headquartered in Nairobi, Kenya. It was started in Africa. The history is that it was started by people who came from a development charity background, philanthropy, and they were British and American in 1957. But later on, where we are now, 1,500 staff, 35 countries in Africa, but also along the way established significant presence in Europe and North America, specifically for fundraising. And these offices were established in what may be called um, a typical charity or philanthropy scenario, where each country in a fundraising market like Europe or North America would have a charity commission. And that charity commission would then require them uh, to, for, to, for us to establish a completely independent charity in that country. And therefore, uh, that's already where we start to discuss 
uh, power dynamics because you as an African organization establish an office in a European country or in an American country, but the law doesn't allow you to have oversight or control over that particular organization. And this is why we have a lot of these challenges across the industry on confederated organizations, you know, affiliated organizations. And there are very few international NGOs that actually have a model or a common governance, common structure. So this is one of the challenges I'd like to highlight. But I want to understand a little more from the audience here, or for, if you allow me, that for us to find viable solutions to social problems where we are trying to, we desire to change uh, those social problems, we require to configure the relationship between ourselves and the power we hold over those people and you know what is their desire and how, and, and how is that power used. But my key question has always been, what is power? When we talk about power shift, what are we talking about? What is this power? In which way is this power expressed? So if you allow me, I want to do a very quick um, uh, Mentimeter here for those who are able to contribute and just tell me in one word, what is power to you? I just want to see a word cloud in terms of what does power mean to us? So that as we shift it, I also understand what you understand and therefore we have a common understanding of what is this power we are talking about? I'm seeing responsibility, ownership, agency, decision-making, value, privilege, change, influence, access, information, control, so far responsibility still stays top, freedom, money, money finally shows up. I actually thought money would, come, would show up faster, Olga. I'm surprised to see it much later in the, in the world cloud. Capacity to prioritize, agency, control, money now comes up. But I want to just ask, uh, you know, one more question here. Second question, who currently has the power? The power you talked about, was it money? Was it decision-making? Rich people, wow. Surprise, donors, governments, big business, the global north. And yeah, I want to say that Australia is part of the global north, despite the fact that it is down under. Uh, so the global north has nothing to do with geography. It's a socioeconomic construct. Governments, private corporations, north, international NGOs. Wow, corporations, confident voices, the global north, those with money, rich people, wealthy. Let me move on from here and um, say you can actually see a clear mismatch uh, between the what power is, money came up very, very late uh, because we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to say that actually power dynamics are about money. Uh, but when we came to who holds the power, we say there's rich people. So it's very clear that actually what we truly believe to be power shifts is money. It's the people who hold, it's, you say it is a global north, which is economically endowed. It is rich people. It is big business who have huge profits. So money actually, as you can see, when you look at those two, is really the big power shift that needs to happen. And of course, with money comes decision-making. And the, my own experience is that these two are extremely difficult to change. And the reason is that even where people say, we truly want to capacitate you, as Viveka was saying, or we truly want to include you, as was said by your say, that people must be included. 
the decision, the things we hold back from inclusion is who makes the decision on the money, how the money is spent, and who, it's about decision-making and, and money. Those are the two things that people hold back. So in my own experience, I've seen people are willing to let women into the board. People are willing to get African people, or Indian people, or Asian people, or whatever other people, people from the global south into their boards. But the structures that have been put together to control money and decision-making over that money are the ones that nobody wants to let go. And this is where the challenge is. So I find that for us to truly be courageous, we must also change our relationship gradient between the people, our desires to impact there, and also ourselves. There's that gradient of money and decision-making is extremely steep. I'll give you an example from my own, from my own organization, because I want to be very practical here, that the structure I talked about earlier of Northern organization that we own as AMREF, they're actually AMREF Health Africa, Netherlands, Italy, US, Canada. The structure of governance that we have is very soft on the money and decision. But we, we share strategy, we share as you know, meeting, we share, you know, we have a common agenda, common calendar, common communication. But the decision of how the money is raised is used after it's raised in Italy, in Netherlands, in the US. That can never be devolved. And the moment you touch on that, everyone gets extremely anxious. So we then have to set up structures that allow the money to be used on communities. And, but we deciding which community agenda and which community program that needs to be done rests with the people who hold the bank signatory and who can sign out the money. And that becomes extremely difficult to change. You have conversations, but the person who holds the pen on the check at the end of the day. So what we are looking at ourselves is how do we actually convince the people who have the money and the decision-making power that they are part of the social movements and the system change they want to change, not in control of. When this shift happens, when this pin drops, that cedar, as Viveka talked about, is only part of the social movement and is only part of the system change, not the one in control of. That the US government sees itself as only part of the donors that we have, the offices we create in the North to raise money, see themselves as only being part of, not in control of the system change. Then we start to see actually the people in control of the social movements, the people who have higher control of the system change are the people with lived experiences. They're the people who are closest to the impact. And those people are the people whose social movements we are trying to catalyze. Therefore, they know what works. And those people are the people whose systems we are trying to change. And if we remain in control through power, decision-making and money of how to change those systems and how to actually create those social movements, then it means that we have less and less chance of success because we actually are not the ones with the lived experiences, as was very clearly explained by yourself. So I think I would like to just frame it there, and I'm sure there'll be more questions coming. And, uh, and to say that beyond one of the things which I didn't see in the chat is location. Whereas we talked about money, the rich people, location is such a powerful uh, power dynamic. I see that organizations that are based in Geneva, based in Washington, based in, you know, when you have an organization based in Malawi, in Blantyre, 
just by mere location, they are powerless. The power is taken away from them because of their location, despite the fact that they may have the systems, but the location takes away power from them. So that's another way of thinking about uh, an additional power dynamic. The, you know, despite others of how we dress, how we speak, the language we use. So there could be many things we talk about, but I think the two chats, you know, very well summarize the high, the high level ones. Thank you very much and back to you. Excellent. And uh, Githinji, thanks for, for helping us both to deconstruct and um, de-stereotype the use of, um, of the power concept and the way we uh, try to handle this. And at the same time, also finding the focus. I mean, we're circling a little bit back to what Viveka started us off on, you know, the 93% of funding, of money, of resources that goes to local actors. But of course, you're adding the dimension of who makes actually the decisions, whether it's in our own organizations through the governance structure, whether it is, you know, who has a say in, you know, who gets what kind of uh, resources. And thanks also for your last point on talking about the location. You have seen one question in the chat that came from a participant about international NGOs starting local uh, chapters and, and, of course, you know, crowding the space and, and maybe also making it more difficult for local actors, genuine local actors, to access those resources that are highly needed. This is highly inspiring. Now, of course, we have seen, um, we have much less time available than we want for deepening the conversation. I've, I think you have done a wonderful job to unpack and, and set the scene basically for what, what are the hot topics we need to talk about. Just wanna thank all of you for your different perspectives, for also the openness and the uh, constructive approach to what I think we all know is a, is a, is a difficult and sometimes antagonizing topic. So thanks, Viveka, Jose, and Githinji. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. You can find links to more information and resources on this topic in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to us.